Riley who's crying more, but like mm. every time I go in there, it's because he, I don't know, he's just doing something he's not supposed to be doing or I don't, I don't know. Yep. <sighs> I'm trying to like, I try to come up with all these systems to like see what works and like I've all but started to like journal about what works with them and what doesn't. But like, it's so, there's so many factors in my house. that's kind of impossible to narrow down what sure. actually works and what's just a coincidence. Sure. Like last right. night they were pretty good, but I'm pretty sure it's just because they spend a lot of time outside or something. And I can't do that on like a work day. Right. Okay. That sounds like an injury. The, the only sure thing that works is that by 9.30 or 10, it stops. Mm. The only reliable factor is time. Right, sure. Regardless of when I put them to bed. Yep. It just doesn't stop until 9.30 or so. Until it stops, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And like the dog is in its crate right now. And like I've got, like I have to, it's just, it's, oh my God. Yep. Have you ever made a bad decision, Dustin? <laughs> <laughs> a couple times. <laughs> I've, I need to, I'm going back to an allergist um, for a different reason, but I'm glad I'm going because I might need to talk to them about getting back on my inhalers because I've been needing them and uh-huh. I've been using all these in- expired inhalers. I've taken these because inhalers. Because of the dog? Yeah, the dog's uh, fucking my, my asthma up. Um, Even though it's hypoallergenic? So here's what I read about hypoallergenic dogs. So like mm. essentially that nomer is kind of misleading because it's like there's no mm. such thing as a 100% hypoallergenic dog it's like a it's like a sales term uh. um but w- the way dog dander what people who are allergic to dogs are allergic to proteins in their urine and in their saliva that mm. um that can get on their fur and then sheds and gets on mm. furniture and clothing and floors and whatnot Hypoallergenic yep. breeds shed very little, so it mm. mitigates the amount of that that you're exposed to, mm. but you're still going to be exposed to it. Uh-huh. Um, so on the overall scale, like I'm not super allergic to my dog, um, but it's it's enough to where it's like, okay, like there's certain times of the day. And I told my wife, like, I'm pretty sure right before we got him, I was sick. So I think that's it's making some of it worse. I'm still coming out of that. Um, you know, it's also winter, so it's the right. air is dry. There's no humidity. So yeah. I think that if there was, if it was as humid as it normally is around here all the time, I think I'd yep. have some relief. And I sure. think it's just like, because I move around a lot and I'm picking up toys, I'm leaning down. Like there's some, there's a, during my crunch time of the day where dinner and bedtimes are, it gets the worst then it's like, I think it's just because I'm huffing and puffing and moving around and sure and whatnot. But sometimes like it's screwing up my sleep. Like I'll wake up at 4am and it's just like, okay, I can't breathe. And yeah, I have to go take the inhaler and go in the other room and sleep on a couch and stuff. So, cause right now he's in our bedroom. Mm. Uh, so all these things you're not supposed to do. If you are allergic to pets, I'm having to do because yeah. he has to be in that crate and he can't be in that crate without someone near him for now. And so Mm. we have to do that whole thing. So, but it's getting like a little bit easier each day. And so part of that was I'm going to grab these inhalers, but the problem is I have one more puff left on like the one that does the trick. Mm. Um, The one I've actually had been prescribed. The rest of these Mm. are my son's 
or my inhalers mm-hmm. and they are expired. Like really these two that haven't even been opened that are Noah's expired three years ago. <laughs> um, and these two that are mine expired in 2017. Okay. Before, so yeah, a little age on them. So what I read about expired inhalers was that, um, the thing was like, if you need to use one that's like 12 months expired, it's fine. It's just not going to be as potent. And I was like, well, what about like a really old one? What if it's old enough to like win a spelling bee? Yeah. Can, uh, right, right, right. Can it, uh, is it, is it doing is damage? Is it going to do anything? Yeah. Like, yeah. like if it's doing yeah. nothing, then it, that's better than like, oh no, that's like, it's worse than vaping. Right. You know? Sure. I doubt it's that. It's probably more just like the effects are so minimal at this yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. So I had to move the stupid uh, appointment. I would have gone to it by now, but my wife got a new job and needed to go to the interview that day, like wow. in the middle of that. And I was like, wow. yeah, I'll move it. And then like the day after was when I realized like, damn it. Yeah. But obviously that's paid off because she's got this job now. So it's like, okay, that was good. It's just now I have to wait until like another yeah. three weeks to yep. go to this person. Anyways, so I'm I'm trying to figure it out, but I'm pretty much, I take a Zyrtec every day and I'm going to go back on my uh, inhaler and we'll see. Yeah. Okay. We'll see, Dustin. All right. The whole point is to is to 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 not complain and to to have a net benefit. Sure. And we forget sometimes that the net benefit may necessitate us ourselves not experiencing immediate benefits. Right. From right. the thing for the benefit yes. of the collective. Yes. So that's the collective is important. That's where I'm at. So well, that sounds like an adventure, man. It's been it's it's it has been an adventure. So, okay. uh, I'll, I'll be curious, uh, how, how well behaved this dog is when he is not as much of a puppy, sure. um, when he, I don't have to, I have to leash him a lot in the house, like time to something yep. and because I can't watch him, but I need to, I need to like work, but I can't like be around him, but I can't, I don't want to put him in the crate yet, but I have to, blah, blah. so like he spends a lot of time, you know, just chained up to something. Yeah. And so like he gets that leash aggression where he's just like, oh, I'm on a leash. Damn it. Ah. And he's ah. just growling at everyone and lunging at my kids and stuff. And yeah. Yeah. And so like two of my kids are afraid of him. Amelia and mm. Oliver like get scared of him. Really? Noah loves him and is miraculously yeah. showing zero allergy symptoms uh, towards him. So that's good. And yep. Riley is fine and goes up to him all the time and antagonizes him and then like mm. lets him lets him like nibble on him for a while before he like starts to get kind of scared. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So. Wow. It's a whole thing. Anyway. So, uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. By the time this episode actually airs, uh, I'm sure I'll have more stories. So that's sure. That's an update on what's going on with me. But you know what? I was thinking in perspective, I was like, would I rather this be happening or would I rather this time, you know, November, December, 2022 happen again? And I was right. like, no, this time right. last year, Oliver had been in the hospital for five days with Kawasaki yep. and yep. that was terrifying and miserable. And then I got shingles Yep, and had to miss my Christmas party. And then I had to spend my Christmas bonus on a, my car getting towed. Yep. So yep. All, yep. all those things, it's like, ah, this is eh, better. This is better. At least I yeah. chose this. <laughs> right. Sure. Right. Sure. Yeah. Yep, yep, yeah. Yep. So. All right. 
Well, gotcha. thanks for being here on a, on a Monday night, Dustin, to record yeah. with me. Sure, man. Um, by the time these are out, it'll be January. So yes. I hope everyone had a happy holiday and a happy new year. It's documentary day. Hey, documentary day. Yay. Um, all right. I want to talk about the one that we probably have less to say about uh, first. Um, okay. I want to talk about Roadrunner. You're probably going to find out about it anyway. So here's a little preemptive truth telling. There's no happy ending. One, two, three, four. Chef Anthony Bourdain. Anthony Bourdain. Anthony Bourdain. The renowned chef and best-selling author of Kitchen Confidential. All the TV chefs are so cuddly and adorable, you know, maybe I'm the antidote or something. Has a new program, Parts Unknown. One minute I was standing next to a deep fryer, and the next I was watching the sunset over the Sahara. What am I doing here? I said earlier that I was going to tell you the truth. This is part of it. It was almost never about food. It was about Tony learning how to be a better person. When he threw himself into something, he threw himself completely. Why am I here? Am I insane? He was like, life's about finding a cliff worth jumping off. I'm going to look for something feral and wild. He was a traditional romantic. Reality was never going to live up to exactly how he pictured it. Hey, what's up, man? He was always rushing to get into the scene. He was rushing to get out of the scene, to go somewhere next, even if he had nowhere to go. He was definitely searching for something. You were successful, and I am successful. And I'm wondering, are you happy? I know how hard it must have been for him to reach out to someone and be like, hey, man, I'm not doing well. Nothing feels better than going home. And nothing feels better than leaving home. The bittersweet curse. Travel isn't always pretty. You go away. You learn. You get scarred, marked, changed in the process. You inspire so many people with the show. You have a good karma. Good karma? I think so. Well... <laughs> <laughs> Some of you might ask, how is this food related? If I know. So Roadrunner it came out in 2021. Um, it was directed by Morgan Neville, uh, who mm-hmm. I heard on an inner hire an armchair expert. And I was like, okay, this guy seems cool. And I'd heard of the documentary before. It's it's called Roadrunner, a documentary, a film about Anthony Bourdain. And that's exactly what it is. So Anthony Bourdain, people probably know about to an extent, Anthony Bourdain is this very famous chef, and he wrote this book called Kitchen Confidential in the early 2000s. And it was just, he's, you know, went around the world for parts unknown for CNN and um, spent a lot of time just like, you know, traveling and uh, sampling cuisine from many different countries. And it's, it's probably obvious I've never watched the show. I know who Anthony Bourdain is, but I've never watched parts unknown. I wasn't. Yeah a fan of his in that way. Like I just was, I knew who he was through bicultural osmosis, but I don't, I didn't know much about him. Um, sure. I remember, wow, that was 2018. I remember hearing about his suicide. Yeah. And as people were really shocked about that, I think he had some substance abuse problems. I think he, 
uh, had some issues with drugs and alcohol. I know he got clean. I think he got into like jujitsu and stuff and he just, mm. I don't know, interesting guy. Um, yeah. So I haven't read Kitchen Confidential. I'm not, I'm, I'm only recently like cooking meals. So like I, food and culinary and like chef culture, that's something I'm only vaguely familiar with. Um, I love, uh, I love Master Chef Junior. Um, yeah. You know, but like I don't, there, there's people who are really into cooking shows and really into the celebrity chef culture. And uh, that's never been me. Um, yeah. So uh, why did I watch Roadrunner? I watched it because I heard it was good. And mm-hmm. I thought the director was interesting. Morgan Neville also directed, um, let me see, stuff that you may have heard of. Uh, well, Won't You Be My Neighbor about um, Fred mm-hmm. Rogers, which was a great yep. documentary. There was uh, Johnny Cash's America. Uh, Search and Destroy, the Iggy and the Stooges, Raw Power. Uh, he did a documentary about Brian Wilson, Muddy Waters, Hank Williams. Um, you know, he he makes a lot of makes a lot of stuff. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, but Roadrunner, I think, was a big one. You know, it's a fun documentary, I'd say, about mm-hmm. a guy who didn't seem to take himself too seriously, but like increasingly, sort of seemed like he felt that life itself was too unserious. After a while, you know, CNN wants to make silly decisions about content on the show or when we can and can't go somewhere or blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he seemed to me through his travels to be so disgusted, increasingly disgusted with American commercialism. You know, the more you travel, the more you compare, you know, America to these other places. And if you're a cynical type of person already... Some would say open-minded, but either way, you know, you sort of go, oh, like there's stuff that you go, wow, I'm really glad I live in America because the, 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 the sewage here is terrible or blah, blah, blah. But then you go to some place and you're like, wow, this is so nice. They really value, like there's no homelessness and they really value art and, uh, culture and nature. Um, but he seemed to be so disgusted with, with the consumption culture that we have here in the U S that he was riding around with like a base level of contempt for his employers, like, you know, CNN or Turner, you know, whoever the, the corporation. So it's a fun documentary. I would say if you're a fan of his, it's worth seeing if you aren't, I just think mm. it's, I think he's, you know, an interesting subject. Sure. Um, the thing about this movie that I think is worth a discussion. They, there was some controversy because they used some AI um, mm. he, the, he, Tony Bourdain narrates the documentary and it's not his voice. Mm. It, it is, it is AI generated. It is taken from his voice, Yep. but it's not like Anthony Bourdain sat in a booth and said these words. Right. Sure. Um, Morgan Neville used words that he had written. So they are his words. Mm. but they just were never recorded in a microphone by him. Yeah. So it's like, okay, well it's, it's not super unethical, but it is kind of weird. And, you know, um, so let's see here. I want to read you exactly. How does that sound? Does it sound stilted? Like, could you, would you tell? It sounds really good. Okay. Um, so, and I think, I think that that always depends on, how how much how much how much like you and i i'm sure it, it would be the same kind of thing like there's lots of hours of you and i talking yep i'm sure that s- someone could 
throw something together that sounds pretty convincing sure. as you and I, for, for you and I, yeah. uh, because there's just a whole lot to play with. I mean, that's what they, I mean, this, they did this like 10 years ago with Roger Ebert's voice. Yep. Um, so it's, it's possible if there's enough data Yeah. and there, sure. and there was for, for Tony Bourdain. Um, let's see upon the film's release, uh, director Morgan Neville stated in an interview with New Yorker writer, Helen Rosner, that he had hired a software company to create an AI model of Bourdain's voice so that the film could emulate him reciting words that he had written, but for which no recordings of him speaking exist, such as an email he had written to friend David Cho. Neville said there were two other such uses of technology in the film, but refused to specify what they were, stating, if you watch the film, you probably don't know what the other lines that were that were spoken by the AI, and you're not going to know. We can have the documentary ethics panel about it later. Uh, the disclosure of the film's use of AI technology, which had not been mentioned prior to the interview or acknowledged within the film itself, caused controversy with critics saying that it con- constituted unethical behavior. Neville defended his decision, saying there were a few sentences that Tony wrote that he never spoke aloud. With the blessing of his estate and literary agent, we used AI technology. It was a modern storytelling technique that I used in a few places where I thought it was important to make Tony's words come alive. Um, Octavia Busia, um, Bourdain's ex-wife and ex and uh, executor of his estate denied that she had been consulted about the use of AI to reproduce Bourdain's voice tweeting. I certainly was not the one who said Tony would have been cool with that. <laughs> mm. Filmmaker and journalist Adam Benzine described Neville's remark about having a documentary ethics panel about it later as being as much problematic as the use of the technology and added, but the fact that he discussed it as an ethical debate seems to suggest that he himself knew that he was in dicey territory, and I think that's why so many people in the doc industry have had a hostile reaction to this. Filmmaker Alan Barker, who has lectured on documentary ethics, described the issue of the film's use of AI as being indicative of greater ethical concerns in the documentary field, saying, There is an unwritten social contract that documentaries are comprised of actualities, not contrivances. The Bourdain case is especially bad because so much of the information in a voice recording is nonverbal. That Morgan apparently concealed the fakery until confronted by a reporter makes it far worse. I, th- I, I, I sort of think it's both. It's like, okay, um... The fact is, it's not the guy's voice, so, you know, it's kind of unethical. It's a little better that it's not, you know, someone trying to write in his voice. Sure. And then having it read as if he would say these words. As if he said it, yeah. Um, You know, um, it does, it makes the documentary better that it's his voice and his words. Sure. Um, I don't know, but I do see why it makes people upset. Um, Even if I can see why it was done in the first place. Having not seen it, I, I understand the both sides of it, right? Yeah. Like, well, he said this, and as a documentarian, I would love to be able to say, like, I have footage of him saying these things and use that, but I don't, so I'm going to do what I can to make up, like, fill in that gap. Yeah. Um, But I also definitely see the other side, and I'm thinking, yeah, but once we start down the path of it's cool to have people recite things um, even if they wrote them, but they never spoke them aloud. I think that that, that is problematic. And, and it reminds me of like uh, that documentary Val where Val Kilmer couldn't 
couldn't speak his inner, his you know inner monologue through that, so they got his son to do it. Yeah, and and it sounds enough like Val Kilmer to you know be believable, but it's not it's not him, and so you kind of feel like okay, I mean, first of all, Val Kilmer's still alive, but secondly. Um, that that's way more ethical because those words are his and he's giving them to someone with the express purpose of communicating them verbally. Um, Anthony Bourdain, Bourdain did not, while, while he wrote them, he did not give anybody explicit use to, you know, to speak them aloud. And I think that that's important. And the second we start assuming the author or the author's intent was to have those words spoken out loud ever, um, is a dangerous it's a dangerous path. And I think that like, as a writer, it's like, again, two sides of me going, well, then don't write it if you wouldn't say it. But then it's like, but I don't know there. Like, this is not a, this is not a thing I've ever had to consider before. And so it kind of makes you question whether or not you're going to write anything, because if somebody can just make me say it, I don't know. It's a, it's a really weird scenario because in, it, it just still feels icky and gross mm-hmm. to to put someone to put words in someone's mouth even if they themselves wrote them because certainly like there are things that we've written you and i um and and probably everybody have have written at some point that we wouldn't dare speak out loud <laughs> yeah you know what i mean right and like and and certainly you write something and it lives in posterity, like in this captured in this moment of time. And then a year passes, two, three, four, five, 10, 20 years pass. And those not aren't necessarily your opinions anymore, or those aren't your, your thoughts anymore. Right. Um, you've matured and you've evolved. And if somebody can just put that in your voice and make it seem like you're expressing this thought or opinion as current thought or opinion, um, again, it's just a dangerous thing. There's more here. Uh, David Leslie, the ethics head of the Alan Turing Institute, said that the issue showed the importance of disclosing the use of AI in a film to the audience to avoid the possibility of people feeling deceived, but added that the use of AI in documentaries should not be ruled out, saying, in a world where the living could consent to using AI to reproduce their voices posthumously and where people were made aware that such technology was being used, up front and in advance, one could envision that this kind of application might serve useful documentary purposes. thought that was interesting. Mm. Um, yeah. On July 17th, the uh, the reporter, Helen Rosner from The New Yorker, the one who you know broke this story, uh, mm. wrote, uh, she revealed that Neville wrote to her that the idea to use AI was part of his initial pitch of having Tony narrate the film posthumously a la Sunset Boulevard, one of Tony's favorite films and one he had even reenacted himself on Cook's tour, adding, I didn't mean to imply that Atavia thought Tony would have liked it. All I know is that nobody ever expressed any reservations to me. Rosner also revealed that Busia had told her via email that she did recall Neville bringing up the idea of using AI, but didn't realize that it had been used. Busia wrote to Rosner, I do believe Morgan thought he had everyone's blessing to go ahead. I took the decision to remove myself from the process early on because it was just too painful for me. So it seems like it was one of those, 
like it, it may have been an honest miscommunication. Sure. But he was like, hey, what about AI? And they're like, yeah, maybe. And then he was like, yeah, yeah. that sounds like a yes. Right. <laughs> Just, <laughs> right. You know, went forward, went forward with it. But yeah, I mean, put a put a label. I mean, if you're going to if you're going to do anything like maybe put a label up and say, hey, this film contain, you know, this it's it's an interesting thing. I don't I don't think I want to see, you know, in general, AI voiceover becoming a thing but um yeah i sort of go okay well it's not like he made him say a bunch of like nazi stuff <laughs> right well so maybe this is the this is another part of this like we if you if you think back to other documentaries you've seen that include like reenactments or something like that yeah. there's always that disclaimer right so yeah so let me ask you First of all, did you feel like you were deceived? And secondly, do you feel like if it had been like any of those moments where they're using AI, if there had been an asterisk at the bottom of the screen that said, um, you know, the following is AI generated audio, uh, would that have made you feel like the film was being more forthright? I feel like they should have just said just one title card would have done it like, yeah. This voiceover is AI generated use of Tony's own writings. These are his words um, with the use of technology. Have whatever you euphemistically want to, yeah. you know. We've been able to bring them to life. Right, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah. I, I, it's one of those things where like he's speaking and then at a certain, I think at a certain point I was like, oh yeah, I remember hearing that this was AI. I just, it just sort of occurred to me. So yeah, I yeah, feel yeah. like it, people, obviously no one who's listening to this, is going to be surprised, but I don't know. I, I, I feel like it's not like effectively, it's not a big deal because it just, it, I think it's more like people go, Oh, I, I think people were probably shocked that they didn't realize that. I think yeah. they felt shocked that they, that it was so good that they couldn't tell themselves. Right. That they couldn't right. spot it. Yep. Um, because yep. if, if it had been kind of janky, they would have been like, what? That sounds, that sounds like shit. Yeah, you know, and and so you don't feel as like hoodwinked. You just sort of feel like, oh, it just sounds like crap. Okay, that's weird, right? You know, but there's no like, how dare you? It's 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 more like, how dare you? This could have been worse. You could have yeah. written some stuff that he would never have agreed with. Um, you know, this could have. We're mad that technology. It's not. So, I feel like it's not so much like we're mad that you did it this way. It's like we're we're scared that this could be done to me with truly terrible things. You yeah, know? sure. Right. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um. So it's an interesting uh, point of contention. Considering and now it's time for Mein Kampf, read by Connor. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, well. <laughs> <laughs> my God, what a pleasant introduction. And now it's time for Mein Kampf. It's narrated the by the author, Connor. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Settle in for Uncle Tom's Cabin. <laughs> An unabridged reading of The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Uh, yeah. So, all right. Well, yep. Okie doke. All right. Uh, let's get into the other documentary. Yeah. Um, which is not on Wikipedia. It's weird. 
I don't like that. That is weird. It makes it makes things weird. hard to talk about on quick reference. But um, right, right, right. This is uh, oh my god, what's his name? I didn't write it down. David Holmes. David Holmes, the boy who lived. Being a stuntman is the best job in the world. You're constantly being tested, just risking it all. I used to fly. Nothing's like it, man. David went in for something, for the sheer fun of it. He had no concepts of fear. I knew I was going to be a stuntman. And I got the best job in the world. Lead stunt double for Daniel on the Potter films. Dave just seemed like a cool older brother. He would do the most dangerous physical stuff. We would do things none thought was possible. What was nice about it was that they all grew up together. Ten years on every film. But it was brilliant. Until it wasn't. I remember straight after breaking my neck, I said, there's no chance of coming back. Worst day in the film business that I've ever had. It is unfair. He shouldn't have had to do any of that. In my mind, Dave's indestructible. This terrible thing happened to Dave, but I don't want to talk as if his life is a tragedy. The way his life has affected the lives of people around him means that it is the furthest thing from that imaginable. Three, two, one. Salvage it! Before my accident, everything was about being cool and being a stuntman. Now it's about being present. I have so much love in my life. You got your mum? You know, I had lots of great friends and I'm so lucky. I've had such a crazy life. Such highs and such lows. But I was able to find light in the darkest of places. So David Holmes, The Boy Who Lived is a story of David Holmes. Um, stunt double for Daniel Radcliffe as Harry Potter. Yeah. Um, they they performed, I believe, all of the films together and and kind of grew up together with Daniel kind of looking up to him as an older uh, like brother uh, figure. figure. And um, they had a lot of fun and enjoyed each other's company and were were very good friends. And as Daniel puts it, he was often friends, closer friends with the crew than he was this, his castmates. And so I think David was one of his closest friends uh, on the set. And um, and during production of the final Potter film, um, uh, or I guess the final two, um, David Holmes was um, injured on set um, during a rehearsal, and it resulted in um, him being paralyzed from the neck down. Um, and um, and this is his story. Um, now I remember this news story happening. Yeah, but. I, I don't think I paid it much attention, to be honest, unfortunately. Like I I think at that time, so that would have been around the time that I first started watching Harry Potter. Okay. Um so um if you remember, I had never seen a Potter film until right before Deathly Hallows Part One. And John sat me down and made me watch all of them. And um and I'm glad he did, but I had never seen any of them. I'm just not because- sure. I had seen I had seen the fifth one in theaters. I'd gone to see that one oh, in really? theaters okay. with a with a, a girl at one point, 
mm. that summer because that was right before college. I was like oh seven. So yep, yep. I remember seeing that in theaters, but I don't think I had really been properly exposed to the movies until whenever we watched them all. Yeah, yeah. It, it for me, it was like I, I told John just offhandedly one day. Oh, I've never seen any Harry Potter films. And he's yeah. like, all right. And he like had them on DVD and yeah. like put the first one in and was like, sit down. And I'm like, okay. Well, and I, and I read all the books between the first, the part one and two Deathly Hallows. Cause then like my mm. wife was like, you've never read the books. And so she got them for me for Christmas and I yeah. crammed them all in, in like four yep. months. Yep. And then saw, I so said like, yeah, it was a big, it was a couple of years there. Of a lot of yeah. condensing absorption right. of Harry Potter. Yeah. So I, I was familiar with Potter, but like newly familiar. So I think when I heard the news story, it was a combination of one, um, for whatever reason, just glossing over it. And two, you know, I, I was, I was relatively new to Potter. So the names weren't quite like, they didn't mean as much to me. They didn't, um, you know, they just didn't stick with me. So I was just like, okay, whatever. I, like I heard the story and forgot about it. Um, so I'm really glad that this movie exists because it brings a story back to the forefront that I think is worth telling. And not only is it worth telling, but I think it's a good uh, reminder of what goes into making some of our favorite films. Yeah. Um, they, they're, they can be dangerous things to make. Um, and I think over over time, and maybe because of some accidents like this, um, and maybe also just because of laziness, things have become a little more homogenized and and um, less uh, people have been have become less willing to take risks. And so at one point you have like, you know, on, on one hand you have John Wick, which is pushing the envelope for stunts. And then you have like the MCU, which has increasingly become you know, more and more sterile and CG. Yeah. Um, and so, um, th this makes the case not that stunts are bad and not that, you know, putting yourself in harm's way is bad for, for the art. Um, but, but that safety procedures need to be in place. They need to be followed. And, um, and, and, Above all else, above a cool shot, above a cool moment uh, captured on film, the safety of your performers has to be the top priority. Um, and there's no excuse for it not happening. And there's no excuse. Like there's there's nothing like if I'm watching a movie, there's nothing you can show me that's cool enough that I think it's worth somebody becoming a paraplegic. Right. Or a quadriplegic. Or dying, um, which a lot of stuntmen have died. Doing. Have died. Yep. There's one on like The Walking Dead not too long ago. And it, and you know, this is this is not worth it. You can't show me a cool enough scene that I, I would excuse that for. Um yeah. so yeah. So so um so this is a good story and it's it's certainly worth telling for for him, but also just for the industry, a reminder that these stunts are are worth uh, are worth something, but they're certainly not worth someone's life. I can't imagine the guilt that, you know, that, that, that lead actors feel when like, when stunts mm. do go wrong and they, they lead yeah. to life altering injuries or death. Like yeah. you must feel like, Oh my God. Like, the, you know, like, and of course a stunt man. And then as David Holmes says here, like I was doing my job, like, yeah, I'm not yeah. mad at anybody. Um, like the stunt that goes wrong that, that, that paralyzes him. He just said like, you know, it, it was, it was just an accident. And, yeah. you know, yep. he said that his mom thought about suing 
Warner Brothers because she was very yeah. upset and angry. And he just said, yeah. why? Why, mom? Yeah. Like, it's yeah. not going to bring, it's not going to fix it, you know? And it I think wasn't, he said, my life is ruined. Why ruin someone else? Why should I ruin? And so for me, the film, so not only was it just like, you know, the the inherent risk that people accept in their given profession and how badass that is, um, whether it's, you know, whether it's, you know, you're a crane operator in New York City or something, or you're painting the windows or, uh, you know, paint windows. You should wash them. You paint <laughs> Paint oh. window pane, but those those yeah. window washers. It's like you know, just there's some really dangerous jobs out there, and yeah. people really don't appreciate how scary they would be. I mean, that's part of what is so fun about the show, Dirty Jobs, or anytime you see any documentary about like, yeah, you want to check out the guys who 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 repair underwater cable and stuff. It's like. Right. You know, you don't realize like, holy crap, like that's really hard and tedious and important. And, and just, it takes a special kind of human being to do that. And the fact that, you know, like in the world as it is, how, how soft we do become in a lot of industries in a lot of ways, um, as certain things get safer, which is good, you lose out on that, that, that kind of special human that's just like, no, like I, I want to do this flip. I want to nail this flip. It's going to look awesome and it needs to, it needs to look real. And it's, it was interesting that even post accident to hear David Holmes be like, yeah, like I, I wanted just to, I wanted the stunts to look as good as they could. And right. for him to essentially not have changed how he feels about his role as a stunt man, his role that day as a stunt man, uh, yeah. what the role of stuntman in the industry should be, the attitudes, his, his mentality surrounding his work has not changed. Yep. But more than that, his attitude towards his daily uh, suffering and his daily um, dependence on other people, for him to display the kind of- Generosity. Generosity. Forgiveness. And, 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 and resolute- um, behavior and the way that he comports himself mm. given how difficult his life now is yeah and all the things he can't do his spirit is very strong and generous and positive and 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 wise and right. that's really really inspiring I'll be honest with you. I mean, it it would not be the way that way for me. Like, no, I'd be so angry. I'd be so angry, and I'd be I I I totally would have completely changed. Like, yes, you know, you have relationships and all of that, but the people who are more or less responsible for this, um, while maybe I wouldn't have sued them, I don't know because you don't want to be like. I do feel like I I wouldn't want to be that guy, you know. Right. Like I don't want to. I don't want to do that. But I certainly would not ever want to talk to you or see you again. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And like, like, and and then and then to ever feel like I could talk positively about my old job, right? There's no way. No. Like, I'll tell you this right now. I, you know, my job. I I like my job well enough. Yeah. But I certainly, if I if I became a quadriplegic on the job site. I would not, I would not be a happy camper no. about that job. No. Um, 
And and likewise, if me and you were recording right now, and suddenly I became a, a quadriplegic, I would not. Like, I would not <laughs> want to talk about this podcast. I, I pushed day. a button, and it's, that's it. You're just paralyzed. It's my <laughs> yeah, fault. Exactly. Sorry, Dustin. Yeah. I didn't know that pushing yep. the button would paralyze you. Like, <laughs> fuck you, Hoover. Well, I'm not going to sue you, but I yeah. don't want to see you ever again. That's it. <laughs> um, um, but but yeah, I mean that that's a, there's a lot of like fortitude in that, and. Um, and not many people have that. And so that's where this story is so interesting and so important because anytime you can remind yourself that this is this is how people should behave, like I, I would love to be able to say that if that happened to me on the job site, that I would display that same kind of, you know, forgiveness and and even keeled. Yeah, but but I would I would I totally wouldn't be. Yeah. Um, but I would love to say that I could, and it's important I think to remind yourself that that two things: one, this is possible, mm-hmm. right? And two, that you know obviously we're we're seeing a carefully cultivated image of David Holmes in this. Sure. And and I'm not saying that the filmmakers are misleading, but I but I am saying that it's hard to believe that there aren't times where David waivers and and yeah. maybe not enough to ever take action maybe not enough to ever you know do anything about it but but uh you know there's got to be easier days and harder days and um and so it, i think it's important to know that as a as a human not only is it possible to be better than you are but it's also uh possible to waver but still remain strong even in your wavering he there's there's times in the film where like especially when he starts to talk more about um how it's it is getting worse it's not just boom i'm paralyzed and that's it it's like i'm losing yeah. functionality um yeah. gradually and that's yeah. bad like when you get to that part and you realize like oh god like he's he has to live with the he he can't just adjust to one big life change he has to adjust constantly to loss of function a, a slow deterioration a slow yeah. deterioration and he's like what 30 something and it's mm. just like it's just, just the, the idea that that's so scary and so unfair and yeah like I, I i agree with you like the it sort of hammers home that like every every reaction to something that happens to you that you can't change is a choice to to how you're going to move forward, you know, and it's admirable that he seems to take the, the, one of the best outlooks is just like, it happened. I can't do anything about it. And I'm not going to help anybody by being bitter about it. Um, especially not myself, but most of us, including me, like I just told you about my allergies and all that stuff. Like I haven't been the most fun person to be around because of my, you know, with my allergies and I can walk and speak and I have dexterity yeah. and it's yeah. like just that minimal loss and like my normal preferred breathing pattern mm-hmm. is like enough for me just to be like a grump, a grouch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, that's a temporary, yeah. I don't want to downplay allergies. They, they suck and they, 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 they you know, whatever, but it's nothing compared to, to what he's Paralysis. living with. Yeah. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that, um, as an executive producer, Daniel Radcliffe, um, yeah. it's such a great 
thing that he is bringing the story to the forefront. Yeah. Um, because it would be one thing entirely, like another thing entirely, if if David Holmes himself was making this film and like you know, kind of pushing his story out there, and nobody from the Potter films wanted to talk about it or or whatever. But the fact that Daniel's out there going like we we all know that Daniel is uh, like he likes Harry Potter, yeah, but he doesn't love like talking about it and yeah. reliving it, and he, and and he's trying to move on. You know what I mean? Like he's trying, yeah. he's been trying ever since then to move on, and um. And he may, in fact, be the blueprint of how to do that properly. Um, he's done a fantastic job at, at moving on. Yeah. Um, but for him to revisit and and say, like, if there's anything worth revisiting that time for, it's this friend of mine. That that's that's super admirable. And um, and for him to say, oh, yeah, I'll put my clout behind this. Yeah. And 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 let your story be seen. Um, yeah, that's that's great. And and also because Daniel also features in the documentary beyond just like interviews, um, it, it's such a I don't know I don't know if you had this feeling, but like it feels really I don't know it's it's warm and fuzzy to see him reminisce about Potter in a way that's positive. Yeah, because like obviously they did that reunion what a year or two ago where. You know, they all got together and talked about it. Yeah. And and it's highly manufactured and polished and yes. all of that. But but this had this feeling that he was reminiscing like the way that we would about college. Like, hey, w- we grew up together and did did these things together. And do you remember that time that we whatever? And and it's Everybody just like our stories are slow motion. Yeah. Our stories are like you slapped me in the face, or do you remember that time that you know we stayed up all night studying for whatever test? Um <laughs> and like his are like, you remember that time that, that dragon tried to eat us? And it's like, oh, that's a lot cooler. But okay. Right. Um, but like it, it's it's cool to see him, I think, genuinely going back to it and saying these were good times and I did have fun and I had fun with you and you are and were a friend to me. And, and, and even to see David be like, Oh yeah, that was fun. Like we had fun. And that's, those are good. like, if anybody of all the people we've already said this, but like if anybody of all the people had the opportunity or, or the reason to say, I'm not talking about Potter ever right. again, it'd be him. Well, and, and if he was as bitter as, you know, you and I, you or I would be in his shoes, um, you know, there'd be no documentary. Yeah. HBO would be like, we want to you know, do documentary and David, Dana Radcliffe would be like, okay, I should warn you that David is very bitter about this accident. He doesn't like to talk about it and he's probably not going to talk on camera about it. Right. Like there's no documentary. It's not like, oh, I guess I don't want to talk about my accident but they're offering me all this money and I really need it because the studio doesn't, isn't taking care of my bills anymore. And I've got this book I'm releasing. Like there's no, it's not like David Holmes just wrote a book or he's launching some foundation and this is just some big marketing ploy, which is right. a lot of times what documentaries are, um, you know, yeah. in a certain yeah. way, it's like, I'm doing this other thing. It's just this big yep. train to promote this or that. And it's right. just, you know, I'm sure he's being paid, but like, Sure. The man, it, it's it, the man's taken care of financially already. I think the studio did step up and take care of a lot of his medical bills and his treatment, um, even though he didn't sue them. Um, yeah. Because it was 
you know, essentially their responsibility, you know, like I think they, re- right, right, I think they exactly. recognize that if they did get sued, they would be paying out. So, you know, but- yeah. Well, also like, it's the optics of it. It's not a good look to do nothing. So, <laughs> yes. so, so you're going to be like, yeah. Hey, here's some money friend. Yeah. Remember we're friends. Yeah. And then, and then if anybody ever calls them on it, they'd be like, no, 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 we gave, we set him right. up. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 It, it's not because they're kind. It's no, because it's, they really want yeah. the optics of being kind. Yeah. Oh, this man's life is ruined. Like the very least we can do is put some money behind, you know, his quality of life. Yep. So yeah, I, um, I thought that, I thought that it was interesting to see Daniel Radcliffe, like you said, talk about Potter in a way that seems interesting to him and actually enjoyable to him and in a way that we haven't really seen him talk about the experience before. Cause like you said, every time he's talked about Potter, people are asking him extremely pointed questions about, Oh, like, are you friends with Rupert and Emma in real life? And he's like, I mean, yeah, we're friends, you know, like it's always that, that answer that every, every like TV show cast and everybody gives where they're like, we're bonded for life because of what we went through together, right? which is a short way of saying, yeah, we're on a text thread together, but we don't hang out. Right, exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Like, it's like, they're my Facebook friends. It's that equivalent. I remember that 20 year anniversary thing and it was this, it was very canned and it was for HBO Max. Yeah. And yeah. it was, it's not so much like, hey, we want to get together and see everyone. It's like Warner Brothers is wants to do this event and yeah. it's going to look kind quick. Of st- Fantastic beasts. It's failing. Right. <laughs> Get some goodwill. <laughs> We're going to, you're going to look really kind of stupid and dumb. If you don't participate, yeah. you're under no right. obligation to be part of this, but right. like, but Daniel, we will pay the, you to be a part of this. Exactly. And I'm sure they were paid <laughs> and I'm sure there was yeah. some things just like, so like you get all these people together to sit down and talk about it and answer all these questions. And it's just like, you know, like what, you know, what a magical time, right, Daniel? And he's like, it was my yeah. job, you know? Right. <laughs> well, but, and, and even then, though, like the questions are always like, at what point did you know that Snape was actually a good guy? It's not like, tell me, like, like this is personal. This right. is, hey, that guy that's a brother to you that had a horrible accident. Have you talked to him lately? Right. That's... It, that's the difference between those two questions. The questions are always like, did did you know it was going to be as big as it was? It's like, yeah. Yeah. Who cares what I thought? It's big. Exactly. How did your life change after you you, you got the role? (laughs) Who is the first person you, what was the first thing you bought with your paycheck, Daniel? Like, these are the questions that people always ask people like this. Exactly. And it's just like, what do you want me to say? What am I supposed yeah, to say? I, I, I would find, I would have such a hard time going, not, not just like being kind of rude, like being like, what's your favorite magical creature from the world of JK Rowling? I love the one where you shut the fuck up. <laughs> I don't know. The one with wings, whatever that was. <laughs> I really love the dragon or the hippogriff or the, I don't know. I don't, I don't I really know. love Krampus. <laughs> I like how he eats the children. Yes. The, the big spider. I don't know. That spider guy. You just do that thing that people who don't want to be interviewed on live TV do. You just start cursing and throwing up middle fingers and they're just like, well, <laughs> okay, great. Thanks. Right, Thank well, you. All right. Next. We got to edit this out now. Yeah.
<laughs> yeah. No, I thought it was yeah. a good, I thought it was a good, um, I thought it was a good doc. And, uh, I, I, I was impressed with him and, um, I, I, again, I, I enjoyed the pure intentionality of it, which was just, there's no like legal defense fund or anything. There's no call to, yeah. you, cause sometimes there's a call to action with documentaries, which is fine, yeah. but it's yep. just like, this was, if you would like to help David Holmes right. donate to, yeah. And so even, even as good hearted and as that is, that's the part where you go, Oh yeah. Like, okay. I feel like now I'm an asshole if I don't help this guy, you know, like, so this whole thing was an advertisement. Exactly. So like, yeah. it can really feel that way. And I just enjoy that. This one was just, here's a really great guy who had a, a horrible accident. He has a really good attitude about it. Um, and it involves Harry Potter. So you, you probably are interested and you should check it out because he's a sweet guy and yeah. it's, and he's, he doesn't, he's not feeling sorry for himself. It's like, you know, right. it's, it's just, it, it feels like Dana Radcliffe went to HBO and said, you should really do a documentary about my friend, David Holmes. He's yep. a great dude and people should yep. know his story. Right. It's like the burning question here is, you know, what is he like post, uh, accident? Yeah. And, and then the other, like, the thing that's funny about it is instead of a call to action or some sort of like plea at the end, like, please, we must make yeah. film sets more safe. Right. You know, instead of whatever that is, this one ends with Daniel Radcliffe and, and David, um, <laughs> like going through the Warner brothers, like you know, prop, a uh, prop, prop department uh, yeah. <laughs> and like Daniel accidentally breaking the, the Batmobile. Batmobile. <laughs> yeah. He's like, oh, oh God, I broke it. Oh, I'm so sorry. I broke it. Oh my God. And I broke that Batmobile. <laughs> <laughs> I think I just dropped the Batman game, guys. Yeah. And like, okay, cool. Like, great. This is a funny, fun. I like how they find the sorting hat and he's like, is that the sorting hat? Dan, Dan, put it on my head. <laughs> I lost my shit. I thought that was the funniest. Yes. Dan, put it on my head. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> I, I, I'd, I'd like to hear Dan, Daniel's inner monologue, like, sorting hat. What was that? Hold on. Hold on. Which movie was that? Yeah. What, what was it? Oh my gosh. I'm going to look like an idiot yeah. if I say the wrong thing. Yeah. Like, that, that's totally what I would be doing is like overanalyzing, like, you know, because that, again, that's the situation you're always in. Like, people are analyzing every answer you give. Yeah. Like, ugh. No, I thought it was fun. I liked seeing Daniel Radcliffe's apartment too. Yeah. I, I don't know. Daniel Radcliffe seems like such a cool guy. Like he just seems like a, like a guy. You he's, know what he, I mean? He's one of those people where you say, you know, at the risk of sounding like a creepy stalker, I really feel like we'd be great friends. Yes. <laughs> you know, no, I like, agree. But, but I think that's partly because like, even in this documentary, they hint about, or they, they talk about how Daniel was very adamant that he didn't change, yeah. you know, after all of this. And it seemed a lot like David kind of helped keep his head on the ground. Yeah, exactly. He like like a big brother does. Like a big brother does. Yeah. Like, hey, don't don't get a big head, like, dude. Shut you up, know? you're stupid. Like, yeah, like, right, exactly. And and it's like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, right. Sure. That's that's you're, a big part yeah. of it. And Dana Radcliffe, Dana Radcliffe is like yeah. the anti celebrity. Yeah, and right. that's what's so appealing about him. It's like the yeah. less he gives a fuck about how he's perceived, the cooler yes. he gets. And yes. the more interested people are. It's like Isn't the it? more he's like, please leave me alone. People are like, fuck, I just want to know everything about you. You're like, no, that's, just, yes. that's the opposite of what I want. Isn't it funny how those those three actors, though, Daniel, Rupert, and Emma, their public personas are very much still kind of in character. Yeah. Like that Emma goes on and becomes sort of an activist. Yeah. 
and 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 Daniel goes on and he's do- doing like other really great things, but wants some privacy. He's just like he's just like moving on. Yeah. And and Rupert's just like, not, don't talk to me. I'm just don't even look at me. I, I'm just at home. Rupert's not doing much. Yeah, he's not doing much. By he comes he, he comes out every so often and does something, and then he's like, okay, I'm. I'm he I'm doesn't any project, again. but that guy, I feel like his agent was like, listen, you could do a whole bunch of stuff, or you don't have to do that much. Yep. What the do you want to do? Is yours, right? The power yeah. is yours. <laughs> Hey, hey, Rupert. Um, so there's two ways to take this. You can either really try to break free of of Ron Weasley, uh-huh. or you could just, eh. Here's, and he's like, here, okay, here's I'll just a end. book on investing. Yeah, and compound Here, interest. Right. He's like, here's a book on taking your sizable sum of money and right. not blowing it all away immediately. I, I'd like to think that the agent was like, here's a bunch of projects lined up with Ron Weasley esque characters, or you could do. A whole bunch of um, prequels as Ron Weasley, uh, but those are your options. And he goes, uh, "Actually, I'll take door number three, where I fire you and take your salary and hire a money manager, and I don't have to do anything." Right? Like, well, you you could hold on. Let's run. Hold let's, on, Rupert. Let's, no, be, let's not. Yeah, you yeah. just called me Ron. Bye. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, Scoop. so yeah. I'm just gonna kind of just go home. Yeah. Chill. I'm just going to sit on this amazing if, money and just do whatever I want to do. If one day M. Night calls me, I'll pick up the phone. I'm going to drink fine. beer and go fishing. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's it. That's it. <laughs>